Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The two hilarious women on today's show didn't actually share the screen that often on Saturday Night Live. But when they did, it was always magical. Hello, I'm Margaret Jo McCullen. And I'm Lynn Bershad. And you're You're listening listening to to The Delicious Delicious Dish on National National Public Public Radio. Radio. (laughs) Well, Lynn, Faith and Bagora, I'm happy to say that one of our all-time favorite holidays is upon us. St. Patrick's Day. Now, for most of us, this lusty and raucous celebration means one thing above all else. Gathering with rowdy friends to convivially overindulge in that nectar of the gods. Bicarbonate of soda. (laughs) This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Rachel Dratch and Anna Gasteyer on SNL as the co-hosts of NPR's The Delicious Dish, after Dratch took over for Molly Shannon. Rachel and Anna joined me on Zoom from an undisclosed hotel in New York to talk about A Clusterfunk Christmas, their new meticulous parody of Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movies that premiered on Comedy Central this past weekend. But... Mostly we talked about the ups and downs of their time on SNL. Anna Gasteyer joined the show in 1996, when it was making its transition from the male-dominated days of Chris Farley and Adam Sandler to a cast that included a parade of hilarious women, including Molly Shannon, Sherry O'Terry, and eventually Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph, and Rachel Dratch, who signed on in 1999. This episode contains a lot of really funny stories about SNL, from both behind the scenes and inside the legendary after-parties. But we also talked about the unique challenges that both women faced when they ultimately left the show, compared to their male counterparts. I thought this was just a really fun and fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. So here's me with Rachel Dratch and Anna Gasteyer. Hi. Sorry we're late. We got distracted. Oh, you guys are together. That's exciting. I didn't know if you'd be beaming in from separate places or not. Where are you guys? You Are you in a kind of a hotel? Uh... Undisclosed, undisclosed oh. location. Just in <laughs> she just revealed. It's very, the plaza. Very top secret. No, we're in this <laughs> hotel in New York. Our own apartments are very noisy. Well, thank you guys for doing this. I'm very excited to have both of you together on on the podcast. And I just got to see the movie, um, A Cluster Funk Christmas. I wasn't sure if it was a cluster uh, funke Christmas or a cluster funk Christmas, but I think it sort I... of depends if you're from the old old country. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it's a really, the movie is so much fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, really got me in the holiday spirit early, which was, which was nice. That was the goal. How exciting. <laughs> if it didn't, that would be sad. Yeah. Yeah. If this is something that's been in the works for, for a while, right. I know it was sort of a, a pre COVID project that kind of, uh, that, yeah. that 
So what's the what's the backstory there? Yes, it was just just very briefly pre-COVID. We sold it at the very end of 2019 in December. And then um, actually, we're just about to start to get into writing it when we went into the lockdown. And the lockdown was sort of a lucky break for us because it created time and space where we could actually write a, a movie together. <laughs> um, even though it was happening like this virtually, we were both over FaceTime and Zoom and whatever. But um, yeah. And then last summer was pretty hairy still in terms of the virus and things like that. So this we managed to pull it back, pull it up for July um, 2021 and banged it out in Vancouver. And here we are. Yeah, peddling our wares. I was. I liked the Vancouver vibes. It felt very, uh, you know, <laughs> Canadian. It, well, so our our collaborator Don, Danielle von Zernick has produced a ton of Hallmark and Lifetime movies in her real life, in addition to other projects. And so when we got together, sort of the idea was like bring the comedy minds and the um, Hallmark minds together to sort of make the best parody that we possibly could. And it was really important to Rachel and to me that was very structurally sound, that it really felt like a Hallmark Christmas movie um, or Lifetime Christmas movie because the the sort of the, the more by the numbers, the more fun we could kind of have with it, if that makes any sense. So that was the brainchild. And we worked with an amazing collaborator as well, Michael Murray, who has written over 20 of these things. We call him the Christmas Whisperer. He's like, <laughs> goes back all the way to like the Columbo Christmas special, I think was his very first Christmas movie. And he was an incredible advisor because there are all of these like tricks of the trade that we really wanted to have fun with. And if you are a student of these movies, even if you love them or love to hate them, there are all these things like they always have they never have a good big budget. They shoot them fast. They crank them out in July in Vancouver. And that was sort of important to us to, to emulate a bunch of that stuff. So definitely to get some Canadian references and day players and not very many extras and, you know, just some of the, the kind of more bird's eye comedy in terms of like the making of jokes. You mentioned sort of the structure, but were there other really specific tropes that you really wanted to make sure you you included? Well, um, I have a friend who watches all these movies religiously and she sent me the most hilarious breakdown of this, the like the six plots that you might have, you know? So the one that we picked was the one that most people know, which is like, Big city, bitchy executive with no time for love or Christmas gets sent to a small town to buy up a local business and meets a hunky local and, you know, the rest is... Abandons like her Christmas. regular life for yeah. Christmas magic. So that's the one that we sort of pick. But then we tried to put in a bunch of other little tropes here and there. Like, you know, there's it's like the dog who saves Christmas or whatever. So every little thing we could think of on the way, like... You know, at one point we had a big musical number break up. <laughs> like we had to cut that for oh, really? the budget and time. So, um, yeah, and then and then all the little, you know, more more little um, tropes along the way that we would sort of stumble into. Yeah, for sure. I mean, everything from and also just you know, honestly, these are really white bread, really earnest comedies, and um, I think we were have we had a really good time with kind of winking at, at that as well. So you know, the way that they traditionally have treated you know, gender and sexuality roles, race, and, you know, all kinds of things. So we tried to touch upon a lot of what we thought was pretty um, hyper stereotypical about the movies. Yeah. The the runner with the uh, the guy she meets who may or may not be gay uh, is, is pretty funny. Is that is that something that came from uh, 
that you've actually seen in these movies or was oh, that? Oh, definitely. There's always a platonic confidant friend. And so by default, they, he's clearly gay, but nobody can ever say it out loud because yeah, it's a Hallmark. Because it's Hallmark, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we, we had fun with that. And then sort of in the more recent ones, the idea of like a super stereotypical gay friend. So we kind of had fun with whatever the line is in between those two things. And our actor, Nils Hagestad, is really fantastic. He really leaned into it and had a good time with it. So. And was the plan always for the two of you to play the uh, two owners of the of the inn? Well, we knew, like Anna and I know that wigs and glasses are bread and butter. So <laughs> when we knew we were writing one of these, we knew we weren't going to be the romantic lead in any way, shape, or form. So it's like, of course, we're playing these spinster, gray-haired <laughs> aunts who run the inn. It was just like, oh yeah, that's a given. Like there wasn't a lot of talk about that. Oh well, where are you coming in from, hon? Uh, New York City. Oh, oh, New York. Never been there myself. Mm-mm. Too many lights, honking horns. Oh, yeah. All that hustle. Bustle. That's a great story. Could I just get my key? Yeah. Uh, let me ask you something. In New York City, can you see the stars when you look up at the sky? Uh, not really. Not with all the lights. No stars? How are you going to make a wish? And there's also sort of a trope therein as well that we were trying to kind of call attention to, which is in these movies, you tend to have sort of the fresh young hottie who's come looking for a lumberjack, or you have like a 350-year-old homespun woman who gives homespun (laughs) stage advice. So you kind of don't have a lot of just like generals outside of those things as Mrs. Claus or and you, but Cinderella. You also, you also have makeovers. So. And you do have makeovers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we, we get to, to we see, also wanted... we, there's some makeover uh, montages that we get to see, which is very yes. exciting. Yeah. yeah. Several makeovers. Several makeovers. Yeah. yeah. We wanted, we, we gave us opportunity for makeovers as well. So it's all part of the genre and it's all sort of what's to be expected. And it's really fun when you meet a fan of the, of the genre too, because they're like, well, do they have a, you know, whatever it is like, uh, so do they go to the country? Do they go to the end? Do they go to, you know, is it going to be turned yeah, into They a... really know. Yeah, yeah well, they know. I, I have to admit that I am not a uh, I'm not a religious watcher of these uh, films, but I still quite enjoyed it, and um, oh, I feel like I, I got the parody even without being super familiar with the uh, source material. So I think that's a that's a positive. Good to know. That's a huge positive, actually, because it's 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 a movie for comedy fans, and it's a movie for Hallmark kind of fans, and it's a movie for Hallmark hate watchers. You know, it's all <laughs> everything in between, and I think the holidays are like that. They're sort of like treacly in spite of themselves. They're traditional in spite of themselves. We kind of want the feel good, even if we want to laugh, you know, so there's this kind of willingness to have something that you can settle back in and enjoy a tradition around instead of being cynical about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that, you know, wigs and, and costumes and funny, funny costumes are your bread and butter. And I know that really probably goes all the way back to the, you know, very early days uh, with you, Rachel, at Second City and Anna at the Groundlings. Um, and you kind of, so you kind of come from these two separate very, you know, major comedy institutions. I was curious um, if you, because I'm sure you, you're more familiar with the one that you were at, but do you, how would you describe each one and, and sort of the differences? And is there any uh, rivalry there? Or is it sort of, uh, they just exist in, in separate worlds? I think they kind of just exist in separate worlds. I mean, I know when, when I was coming up, that was, those were like the two places that SNL scouted. Like that was it back that then. That was it, yeah. So if you ever- No UCB, even, no, uh, yeah. No, yeah. and like, you know, they, they may take a few stand-ups, but there wasn't like, the internet didn't exist. Right. So it wasn't like you and could get TikTok stars, seen yeah. because you have this <laughs> following, right? That just wasn't even there. So those were the two places you went. So it's sort of like, 
you know, you'd end up at either one of those places and you'd eventually, you don't go there like, I'm going to be on SL. You just go to like, try to make it into the yeah. improv comedy world and, and you like slowly move your way up and everything. But then you also know those aren't the only two places really that SNL would, would scout. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like Groundlings is was more about like characters that like directly transferable to SNL almost. And Second City was a little bit more in my mind, like theatrical. Organic, like, we yeah. would do like a whole show that was the same every night for months mm. and months and then we would have an improv set after the show every night so it was almost like a theatrical piece sort of i don't know if the groundlings yeah i mean and also the groundlings program like in order to make it to the to the main stage there at least when i was there you really you have to graduate up through it so everybody has a certain base level of training that's uh, in common and they do treat writing comedy as its own thing so there's there's i think now there's two writers labs and a lot of it is like developing a character monologue developing you know and then you and then by the time you're on the performing stages the sunday company or the main company it's almost identical to snl actually you're you're mounting material on wednesday and then if it makes it it's going up on on sunday like over yeah, it's really like a training ground it it's really like... is so i mean not intentionally but that's and collaborative and all of that so and then same thing improv set we the growling show is structured as sketches with improv games in th- throughout and then like there's three or four all improv sets weekly so very similar i mean i i went to college in chicago and it was like a very simple i was going to stay and try to do the second city and then somebody convinced me to move to la for a completely different reason so and then, and then I was like, oh, I got to do the groundlings. Like it just, they were pretty six of one half dozen in my mind yeah, back then. I would say so. Yeah. Do you feel like the groundlings prepared you for SNL better than maybe Second City prepared you for SNL, Rachel? Uh, I don't, it's so hard to say because yeah. I don't know if anyone really feels like prepared when you get in SNL. Like there's yeah. so much different there, even coming yeah. from Sketchland. So it's hard to say not having done both, but um, I think in both of them, you had to develop characters and try to write. And that's, you know, obviously like yeah. a giant thing at SNL. So yeah, for sure. But, but one thing they both, ha- I was going to say, they both have that's helped along the way so much is they're both ensemble based. Mm-hmm. And so like, we're very used to collaborating and very used to you know, relying on some, you know, if you're in an improv scene that's dying, you know, like someone's going to have your back as opposed to like stand up, which I've never done. But, you know, because then when you're bombing, you're like bombing on your own. But like <laughs> yeah. the idea that you're all building something great together or yeah. you're all like saving Go, each other's ass, going down, yeah. depending on what the night is like. So that feeling of collaboration, you know, carries over the SNL, same thing for sure. Because I've always enjoyed writing with other people and yeah, it's super tribal. I mean, I I went to, I went to Northwestern to be a voice major. I was supposed to be like a singer. My parents thought I was going to be an opera singer, literally. (laughs) So I I mean, I didn't want to be, but that was like what the plan was. And I got there and I met the improv people and it was literally tribal. It was like, I just found my people like for the first time in my life. Like I was like, you know, it was Northwestern has a big Greek system. I was like, I don't want to be a sorority, whatever. This was like a major click. And I, I mean, click with a CK, not a QUE, although we were probably kind of clicky. Um, <laughs> but the uh, same thing, like the Growlings felt that way. Second City, I'm sure, felt that way. IO, UCB, like, but then that sort of graduates into like the larger company of humans who do this kind of work. It's just, I remember we went back, uh, Betty White hosted for Mother's Day about, uh, 10 years ago. And the, the women of our, of, of several eras went all, went back um, to celebrate Mother's Day and write the show. And it was, it was just this, like, this was long after we kind of graduated from SNL and we were all doing, you know, Rachel had done some Broadway shows. I had done some we had film TV, everybody was doing different things and experience show business really outside of that world and coming home and just the sense of like, 
true family reunion and whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, you can never leave the mob or like, it was just the sense <laughs> of like, Oh, we're, we're mutants. Like we all have this thing that where I can collaborate with people across the board in entertainment, I, I feel such a profound kinship with people who come from comedy and improv background. Yeah. I mean, you guys both had, I think a very strong female uh, cohorts at Groundlings and Second City, and then and then also at SNL, which kind of goes against. There's you know some idea that comedy is a boys' club and that certain aspects of comedy are, but it seems like that really wasn't the case for for you in, in either of those places or SNL. Or how do you think about it? Yeah, I feel like you know we get asked a lot about yeah. like SNL was it hard for women? I think maybe before my time, like I can't speak to that because maybe it was, but I feel like it was always pretty equal ground. Like, I mean, it's, it was a hard place to get your scenes on, you know, no matter what your, your gender really, but it's like, if your scene killed at the table, like, and you know, it had a shot of getting on, it wasn't like, that's lady humor for the most part that I ever experienced. And then like yeah. the women are so strong the, the whole time through. I mean, when I was there, I felt like I was working with very strong women comedians. And then, you know, even afterwards, the whole time, like the cast now and... Yeah, I mean, not, I don't want to get too political about it, but, it, it you know, look, after, after is probably where the rubber meets the road on some sexism. Like, you know, the opportunities That's afforded true. to our peers and not, not that they're undeserving, but you may have been a highly successful sketch comedian within millions of recurring characters. And that's one of the reasons I stayed and did Broadway. Cause I was like, I don't really want to like fight for the three parts that are going to be, I, I left the show in 2002. It was a very different world before Kristen wrote bridesmaids. And even for a few years thereafter, I mean, I think opportunities like this movie that Rachel and I've written are becoming more and more prevalent all the time. But I'm not sure, honestly, that we would have been able to sell it 15 years ago. Like, it's been really fun to kind of... We worked with an entirely female set of cohorts. We had a female director, our co-collaborator, co Danielle von Zernick, the ex all the executive producers are women. So it was. it's a very different... I think the landscape's changed significantly. But I've been off the show now for, you know, 19 years. So um, I would say just graduating the show, I was really blatantly told just to get dirty about it, like by a big male comedy manager, like you're not going to work in film. You're, you know, you're, we're, we need to try to get you a TV deal. And frankly, it was all wives at that point. So it's just, a, it's, it has changed. It has changed partially because of people like Tina and Amy and our, you know, colleagues who have pushed that boulder uphill, but it's, and because culture has changed, society's changed, you know, that things move along. So, yeah. I mean, when you think about the kind of opportunities that came to, you know, Will Ferrell and Jimmy Fallon when they left the show, it was, you know, it's different. And again, they're not undeserving. Like right. they're of course phenomenally not. Yeah. deserving. But I would say that, yeah, th those opportunities came fast and, yeah, to boys. Can we go back to, to when you two first met each other? Was it at SNL that you, that you met for yeah. the first time? Yeah, yeah. Anna was already on the show, had, had been yeah. for a couple of years, and then I came on as a new hire. And so, um, you know, like when you first get hired at SNL, I mean, my experience is like, you're like tiptoeing in, you know, trying to learn the ropes and um, you're kind of thrown into the pool, you know, like, so it's just, yeah, there's no orientation, like, write a sketch and hope it gets on. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely no like orientation. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you're sort of like swept up as the new person. And then, you know, as you've been there longer, you're going to see someone else come in. But yeah, Anna was always one of my favorite cast members when I was watching the show as a mere citizen um, before, <laughs> I, before I got on. So um, as we were saying, like, we don't have it. Like we, I, she always makes me laugh and we always, I just always 
love her comedy. We didn't have anything like some sketch together. No, it was like, right. here comes Josh and Gaz. I know. Which is I funny. Know, right? We worked together a lot, actually. We tried. Since. We tried. We wrote yeah, we, a few things. We wrote that, a number of duds. We big bombs. Really? I want to hear, I wanna hear about those. I what were the, what there was one thing. We were trying to do one where we were at a garage sale. Yeah, that was a flop. And we, it was a flop. <laughs> we thought it was hilarious. We were two ladies we like wrote, sitting in lawn chairs. We wrote like folk, folky women's. I just remember singing like Oh, wait, we did. Wait, we did do um we did do a scene where we played um real life gay couple yeah. real life gay couple and it was part of like like a it was dude's parodying like it's guys probably would looking, get us canceled yeah, now. we canceled we canceled but um at the time but, but it that, was that one aired yeah what'd you say that, that one, one aired yeah. yeah very I gotta, I gotta find that one oh. yeah, it's not worth your time. <laughs> I thought it was no, funny but we did <laughs> but was it was I was I really if I said what the plot was now I would probably get canceled but. If you watch it, well, don't go look. And that's a good politics. <laughs> I thought it was funny. It's like uh, it was ma- funny. It's about it was the actually male making gaze. fun of like a frat boy. Yeah, it's about making fun of the way guys look at women on camera. Yeah. Oh, mighty amulet of wishes! I call upon your awesome power for my third and final wish. Please bestow upon us two real life lady lovers, so we can watch them do their thing till we bust the nuts. Remind me to buy bulgur tomorrow. <laughs> we're, we're supposed to bring a side dish to Cheryl's Equinox dinner. Is it the Equinox already? I swear to Gaia, it seems like just yesterday was solstice. Mm. You smell great. Were, were you working with the bees today? No. It's that hemp soap you bought me in Provincetown. <laughs> it's driving me crazy. What the hell is that? <laughs> We've done a lot since the show, actually, partially just by nature of the fact that like, we're a small little tribe of women and we tend to all kind of um, populate the same projects and stuff like that. But like Tina put us in her show, Great News. We played uh, Kathy Lee and Hoda. Kind of oh, yeah, that was great. Yeah. I love that show. So much fun. And it was and, you know, of course, we did Wine Country and we've done we've hosted a lot of things together, um, you know, in the world of comedy you get called upon to host for charities and things like that so we've actually done a fair amount of just goof around um collaboration and this was our real this is our first real effort at like also i'd never written a full-length script i'd written yeah it's a know, lot different than writing uh, sketches very yeah, different sketches of, it feels like a math problem to me like yes that's i've had a lot of ideas for screenplays that i think are really good ideas <laughs> and then as a matter of fact then i don't write them and then i see oh someone else did it like five years later and it was but i i don't have like the math brain of that like putting together act three then this happens at- before we get move on from the beginning of of your time at snl uh rachel i was really interested to see which i didn't remember that your very first episode i believe norm mcdonald was the host which uh he came back after he had been fired from the show to host which i didn't even realize had happened um and i was just curious if you have any memories from from that and well and i'm gonna be norm honest hosting. with you it was because i was just new you know fresh off the boat there and um so it was like the the, the very first one was seinfeld and then the next week was norm Macdonald. Oh, okay. and i I, but I didn't make it into either show, which I don't know if that happens. I mean, all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but anyway, sure. like, and it's like you tell, so my memory is like, you know, you tell your friends like, Oh my God, I'm on SNL. And then like, you're not in it. And then the next week comes out like, you got something on SNL. I have a sketch. Like I wrote a sketch this week. It got picked. And then like, it gets cut. So yeah. whatever. I don't remember how you were in your, but anyway, crying in your dress wasn't in the show. Yeah. So 
I mean, and also when you're that new, well, even like later, I've been there years. I wouldn't be the, I'm pretty like shy. So I don't just go up to every host. Like, um, I love that thing right, you right, did. Right. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I just sort of was like quiet as a mouse, especially week two. So I really, unfortunately have no stories or recollections yeah, yeah. or like from fun. those, from that early on, do you, do either of you have a particularly memorable uh, interaction with a host that either went, uh, well or, or not well? <laughs> well, you know, it's what was, what, what, what was always the sort of most, I mean, you know, again, you do six or seven years of shows. It's literally in the hundreds of shows that you end up doing and not in the hundreds, 120, 125 or something. I think I once added up, but so it's hard. Like it's a lot of people, but what you do end up taking away from it is we, we always got the best version of people because they're, they're terrified. They're sort of at the mercy of the cast and they are hoping that you can help them through with what is, I mean, I have to say like, it's, it's not easy hosting SNL. You have to have a ton of blind faith. You have to really, you can't be a control freak. You have to like trust that the material is good. Trust that the cast is going to take care of you. Trust that Lauren's going to take care of you. And it's brave, you know? So you, it was very, very rare that you would see anything remotely resembling bad behavior. And even if you did, it tended to be masked terror. I mean, you know, like (laughs) I had people like enormous stature tell me they threw up on the plane. They were so nervous, you know? So, um, because it's terrifying. And also, by the way, they like get judged and criticized for how well they do or how well they don't in real time. And it's, it's not, um, it's not for the faint of heart, you know? Yeah. It's funny. It does create some weird power dynamics where there's like these massive celebrities, but they're like in your hands to, to, to make it work. One other thing I noticed is sometimes the people that were the best, like actors, like people that have won Oscars and the most amazing actors, they wouldn't tend to do as well as someone that was like a politician or an athlete athletes like because they're like well i don't care i know i'm not good at this you know like they don't they're not trying to be good so then they have no fear about it or they're used to that athletic whatever right or like different different reactions to operating under stress yeah exactly like Like they're used to being under and so um they often would have the best shows yeah like christina ricci came in and she was like she had been famous since she was seven years old, you know, from the Adams family. And she was, you know, the celebrated actress and it was her first time ever in front of a live audience. She confided in me. So it was like, you know, things like that, that you're just like, it's a funny way. Like it's a different road to fame. And she, she and, and Rachel's right. Like someone like Jeter, I remember it was so funny. Cause he's, uh, he was amazing. And, and, just charming and lovely. And of course, everybody's complimenting him. You're doing so great. You're doing so great. And he, I remember he leaned over to us and it was a sketch Emily Spivey wrote it where he had, a, he just got a perm and he was like super confident about his perm. So funny. Anyway, um, he was like, you guys don't have to like compliment me. People, people tell me I suck like every day. It doesn't bother me. So he just tell me like, you could tell it almost bothered him. He was like, how can I improve? You know, cause he's an athlete. So he's just used to like he doesn't operating need under the, pressure, uh, operating yeah. well. And if you really think about like baseball in particular, it's so, it's so solo. They're all by themselves every time. Yeah. You know, and it's a lot of failure. It's like, yeah, that's, you know, if you're doing it, if you're hitting a third of the time, then you're succeeding. So, but to yeah. that point, when you were talking about the power dynamic, which is hilarious, because, you know, we have these storied parties. Rachel reminded me of this story the other day, those giant parties after the show and late nights and so on and so forth. And, Jeter had just, he hosted and we went to the party and then there was an after party and he had just bought, purchased like a massive, glorious apartment that week. He, he was like, oh, it's so weird. I'm moving that week. We're like, we're moving. Like, and <laughs> yeah. all, we're all imagining like, cause we're like, you know, taking the subway to work and we're imagining like paying our friends in pizza to move us. Yeah, and yeah. literally. That's not how Derek get, Jeter moves. No, it was at the time Warner Center and it was like this penthouse, just like 
you know, gorgeous Central Park views. And we were like, oh, well, he just moved in. It's your story. Do you want to help? Oh, no. I was just kidding. <laughs> I'm like, it was in June. I'm like, you know, you know that thing? Because like, it was over by the UN. And I just had to fact check you on that. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't Central Park views. Oh, you're right. Anyway, that doesn't even matter. It was a, spe- it was a jetliner views. It was, it was, the point As is. As they say in real estate. This, does, this never happened, by the way. But the one time is that. He was like, "Hey, everyone, can come, come back on to my, my apartment. Come back yeah. to my place. Yeah, that so doesn't happen every week. His everyone goes, and it's after, like after. completely set up. Every picture's on the wall. There's glasses in the like cabinets. the silverware was on all the right places, and we were like, like I don't understand. Is... You moved yesterday. Yeah, like, you thought there were like, any boxes everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it was just there like Naria box and Naria minion. <laughs> you just you saw nobody who had like skittered in in the dead of night and put together Derek Jeter's apartment and then left and ready we were for just a party." Like, wow. We are definitely the plebes on this story. Like, you know, we've gone from our week of status to our, like, absolute, like, the opposite. Like, do you think we charge us for the beers? You know, (laughs) exactly. Coming up, more SNL stories, including the biggest party of the show's history for its 40th anniversary, and why Rachel Dratch had so much fun returning to the show to play Amy Klobuchar during the 2020 election. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a ton of SNL alums on this show over the years, including Martin Short, Sarah Silverman, Colin Quinn, and many more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Rachel Dratch and Anna Gasteyer. I do feel like the Christmas episodes of SNL have have gotten sort of bigger and bigger as the years have gone on and then and people coming back for because it's the last episode of the year usually. Um, so I was curious if you have any memories of uh, spe- specific SNL Christmas memories that that stand out that you really uh, that you that you love. Well, sort of to Rachel's thing about like being new at the show from, from oddly, all my like sort of big successes from the show happened around Christmas. So sweaty balls happened on NPR, yes. the Martha Stewart's topless Christmas happened. Like the, it's funny that it was always like a really, uh, it's like my, it, it's just a nice time of year for me. It seems like creatively. <laughs> well, Pete, Terry and I've been looking forward to having you on the show. Cause we know you're the master of all kinds of Christmas goodies. Tell us about them. 
Well, there are lots of great treats at this time of year. Zucchini bread, fruitcake. But the thing that I most like to bring out at this time of the year are my balls. about your balls, Pete. Well, over at Seasons Eatings, we have balls for every taste. Popcorn balls, mm. cheese balls, rum balls, you name mm. it. Wow. My mouth's watering just thinking about those balls. So I have fond memories of all of those, like, and it, even then, I mean, we would have, you know, like Vanessa Williams and the New York Philharmonic, like it was always a cool the Christmas show was always sort of fabulous. There were a couple where we like, I don't know if they still do it, where they would take you down to the rink. Oh, yeah. So then at the end of the night, for good nights, you would go run down, like run down this weird elevator system you never used. You're like up in 30 Rock. And then you put on skates and frolicky skating outfits. Like Courier and Ives. Yeah, yeah. and then you would skate around. That was so fun. But it was was so (laughs) fun. It was like a two-minute costume change. So you would would be like running and costuming to get into these elevators to get everybody down there to be photographed for good nights on this. But the thing about SNL that was so fun, like, I mean, you know, it has like total ups and downs. Like the down for me was like, trying to write every week and, you know, trying to come up with characters and hoping you get on the show and all that stuff. But um, just like that pressure is what I mean. But then there's, then it's like, so it's this like rarefied dream job where of course you've grown up watching it and then, oh my gosh, you're on it. Like I still would pinch myself, you know, after years of being on the show. But then like the idea that, you know, anyone could drop by and anything could happen. Like, like I remember this was after I was off the show, but um, Mick Jagger was oh either like hosting or was the musical guest at the end of the year show, the the season right, finale. Right, right. Yes, and yes. So after, and so oh, that yeah. party's always the most fun. <laughs> I'm just talking about parties instead yeah. of the actual, <laughs> instead of the work. So parties are fun. Either, I just, <laughs> but, like, but so the end of the year party is so fun because it's out in, um, in but, Rockefeller Plaza, you know, it's like under the stars. Now, like eight out of the nine years I went, it poured rain and was freezing cold and you could never have this party but there was this one year as i said i was on the show and mick jagger got up with the food fighters or dave grohl at least and anyway they played outside it was like two in the morning and mick jagger singing i was imagining anyone like walking by that's my, like, is that, my is that mick? i couldn't imagine someone yeah. who happened to walk by and like look down and there's mick jagger yeah was that chris was that Kristen wiggs last uh, show i think was that when he said because yeah. he serenaded her in her last show yeah on air so that was pretty great oh right yes yes she's like a rainbow thing yes yes yeah. still coming back to me yeah and then, of course, I mean, as long as we're talking about parties, parties, I think the, the most legendary party of all is, of course, the SNL 40 party. Um, do you have any do you have any uh, memories that stick out from, oh from that night? Either because well, like you were both any, on the show too that night. right? It's like a rabbit hole. I mean, it, it literally was like a like a drug trip. I mean, I like we that that week was so surreal, as I'm sure everybody's talked about with you. But uh, and it's storied by now. But I, I like took to my bed. It was so um for two days. It was so adrenal, like everywhere you turned the most incredible sort of titans of every aspect of American culture. So that entire week was sort of this devol- like evolving. We did a Bobby and Marty on that show with middle school music teachers. And so the week starts strong with just like, Oh, this is a homecoming week. And like Cheryl Hardrick, like the original musical director of the show who used to write Bobby and Marty's there and Mark Shaman and like who wrote hairspray, who's play for the show like that we're in the room so already it's this sort of who's who of like the comedy musical geniuses of american culture and then like 
you know, so you, inside baseball, you know, and they've got like Will Ferrell and, and Paula Pell who wrote the sketch with us. And then as the week progresses, then we go with, and it was all amongst the sort of musical acts. So then you're with like, you know, I mean, in comedic musical acts. So you've got everyone from like Opera Man to like Steve Martin yeah, and the banjo. That was a great and, like, section. Every, yeah. Yeah. Every single Maya and Marty and like every single where you turn, you're like, oh my God, there's just like a bigger star than the last time I turned around. Kristen and Fred, blah, blah, blah. It just keeps going. And then literally, so then the, I remember thinking, because my daughter was like a middle schooler and I was like, I've got to bring her to the show. She's got to see, she's got to memorize in her mind the number of legends that are just in this building, Billy Crystal, you know, everybody's there. And we go in and like immediately, like every, everyone was there immediately. She sees, it was so perfectly SNL, Bradley Cooper and, um, and, uh, Carrie Washington. They're like, it was like, so she's, and, oh, and, um, you know, a, a Timberlake right away. And so she, all she can think about is like the celebrities. And I was like, okay, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. But that's yeah. sort of like the whole show. Right. <laughs> and then the show goes on. There was like this party that all the girls were invited to of the show. And at that party, you're like, you know, Peyton Manning and like Katie Couric. I remember it was like the weirdest collection of hyper fame. Like it was, and I think it was Jagger. And I mean, it was just this super mind blowing group of, 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 literally everybody, everyone, everyone had ever heard of was there in American culture at, at the show itself. Like Sarah Palin was there. Taylor Swift was there. It was like, didn't stop. And then to go to that party. And I mean, the most memorable moment, of course, now, especially in history, you know, cause we had at one point, I'm sure you've heard like every, the B-52s were up there. David Byrne was up there. I mean, ev everybody. And then I, re I remember like the seas parting and everything was like, it, there was like a rustling and a whispering and turning. And then Prince just walking by. Mm -hmm. And heading up there. Floating by. <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. It really was insane. Yeah. yeah. No, that's crazy. And I think I, mean, I had to, I took, and then I took to my bed. And I think also for oh, both of you. Oh, and right. <laughs> yes. Um, for both of you to kind of be part of the show too. And it really, I feel like that show, that special, you know, codified who are the iconic SNL characters from over the years. And as you said, you did Bobby and Marty with Will and um, Rachel, did you do, did you do uh, Debbie Downer on that? I think I did like a little like one little intro line thing as, as Debbie Downer. Yeah. From the California Back to Mr. Bill. Oh, no! Bring it on down to SNL. Sadly, sadly, history has taught us that opening the show with a musical number leads to a sharp drop in ratings. <laughs> Really, it, it shows you, you know, what which are the most memorable characters or those. Is that the one that, that you get uh, people come up to you the most about Debbie Downer? Yeah, probably Debbie Downer. Sometimes the, the lovers in the hot tub. Oh, yes. That's um, a good that's one, too. That's probably the other one. <laughs> but yeah, Debbie Downer seems to be the most thing, the thing people come up to me the most. <laughs> is that ever awkward? Do they want you to kind of bum them out? or you? Everyone's always like, oh, my gosh. One time I was standing on a street corner. It was at night. And I was just like, <laughs> you know, I'm standing on a street corner. And that's that one does. does. That doesn't sound good. But I was about to cross the street <laughs> and I heard, these, party. I heard these two people behind me. And one of them was like, you're being a Debbie Downer. And then I wanted to turn around and be like, <laughs> actually, but. I didn't. You didn't do but it. Yeah, that's oh. what, that's like the that would have been good. Actually, like it's it's codified into language. Like there are a few things that made it that way. And Debbie Downer did it. I was, you know, that that Taika Waititi movie, Hunt for the Wilder People, where it's like about a kid and it's, it's yeah, beautiful. It's a great it's movie. In, yeah, in New Zealand. And literally, like I was watching with my son last summer, and halfway through the movie, he turns around and goes, "Okay, Debbie Downer." Like it's like this New Zealand, that's you know, family yeah. film. Like it's all over the world. People say it. Where people I've conquered the world. She's got. Well, it's like Tina does it too. With like mom jeans like there's certain oh, yeah, mom jeans that, like, like that's 
didn't exist. She, she created that term. Yeah. But people don't even realize that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of weird when there's like things like that, that, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you met, you mentioned earlier that it was kind of, that there was challenges after you left the show. I'm always curious about the decision to leave. And obviously, you know, now there's someone like Keenan who's been there for like 20 years. And I also know it's not always your decision to leave. So I guess, was it for each of you, was it your decision to leave the cast and how did you come to that decision? And was it a difficult one? I would say now, I mean, as has been widely reported, it's, Culturally, it's much more acceptable to come and go. We we were really like you either had to go do your projects or be on SNL. I mean, there back in the day, yeah, like there wasn't there wasn't room to do both. Like Lauren was, you know, very protective of the brand, and you know, didn't even really like people to do like a lot of commercials and things like that. Now every cast member has like endorsements, literally, and you know, side shows, like yeah, side like, shows, yeah, exactly, side show, but yeah. And people yeah. going off and doing other projects. Yeah, so that that became sort of if you wanted to spread your wings a little bit or sort of figure out who you were a little bit, it just was very much an either or. The cast was smaller. It was just you know a more exact decision. And I definitely like I I, I as I said I have come to accept about myself that I am this person. I'm in the tribe. But there was there is a sense when you're doing a last minute show all the time for year in and year out that you're just sort of pulling it off all the time. There's just this sense of like. Did I fail? Like I didn't, the best you could do is to not fail, you know, if that makes any sense. And I really, I was very drawn as, I think Rachel was too. I don't want to speak for you, but to, to, to the, to theater, to New York theater in particular, because it, it was highly ritualized. It was perfection. You could go in, you could make something better every night. You could kind of, you know, and I was more interested in my singing career at that point too. And I wanted to do Broadway shows. So that was, uh, I had an opportunity I just didn't want to pass up on. And, and I had a baby and I was like, I don't really know if I can, I didn't want to leave again. Now we probably could have hung around. I didn't want to leave after my best. I don't want my work to peter out over like a four year period because I was at home with a baby and, you know, I didn't want to just, but now, now I feel like you could like just kind of tune in. Sometimes I wish I'd stay Yeah, But it is, I mean, it seems like a show that you have to give like you know, 150% to, and it's, yeah, that's, I just wouldn't hard. know how to phone it in there. I mean, I think some people are really capable of it, but I, I, just, <laughs> I mean, I mean that in the most complimentary way, like that they get written for, they come in, they land it and they leave. But I never really at our, during our time, like if somebody did the odd movie during it, like we'll do it old school or whatever, like it was very stressful on those people. And it just didn't, it seemed hard to do. So that was my decision better or worse what about you rachel well mine was kind of like muddy i think if i had been there like now i think i would have like now people stay for yeah, they years stay. and years yeah. and that's the thing but back then it was kind of like seven years you know yeah. seven years and out. out yeah and yeah. also our contracts were seven years yeah they were seven years and like just no one really i mean a few people were like you know rolled out like please stay like i wasn't one of those people but i don't mean that like it just that was how it worked yeah. now i'm sort of envious of these people that like i know are there for years and years and hop know, in and out do a couple it shows seems kind of cool to me it but it just wasn't cool. really like that back well then. you, you have gotten actually i was the last of the five-year contract so also to speak to that like i'd stayed for six and i was like oof. well i've already stayed a year past yeah, my you contract. felt like you were bonus uh, you were already in, in a little bit yeah and but Rachel, you have come back uh, a bunch over the last few years, including to play uh, Amy Klobuchar, which was a which was a fun thing. Yeah, it was fantastic. yeah, that was so fun. That's become this big more and more trend on the show is having you know people come back for those kind of. Is that fun for you? Yeah, so fun. I mean, especially these political years when they I don't know and like when was that anyway? You <laughs> can't keep time it's straight. Blackout, yeah. But um, yeah, that that one year of um the election, they they did a lot of bringing in um outside people or people that have been there. And uh, it was so fun. I, I mean, I got the call on, you know, 
Thursday night or something. Like, can, are you in town and can yeah. you be here? And it's basically like, because you kind of look like her. <laughs> like, that's what that was. Because, I mean, you know, it's not like I had some, like, burning Klobuchar impression. But anyway, so they brought me in and I thought, like, okay, that's it. You know, and then I was like, oh, what if? What if she stays in this for a while? And that's what Ooh, what if happening. she becomes president? That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that definitely crossed my mind. <laughs> but um, no, uh, it was super fun to go back, especially you know, it's just it's really fun to go back when you when you don't have like all of your hopes and dreams. Like I hope it's my, my whole life. Because yeah. like you've no, written I'm a sketch sure. and you really feel you know this could be good, then it gets cut or whatever. You're you're not in the show much and like all that stuff. That's not there when you just come back to just do a fun little thing like that so and then yeah and then they kept bringing me back and it was it was a really fun year let's go now let's go now to senator klobuchar thank you rachel i know some of you think i'm shaking because i'm nervous but this is just my signature quake quivering bang it's my sense that tingles whenever we need a moderate to say, girl, we can't pay for that. And it's also like, I'm sure you've documented, it's the last show of its kind on television, meaning it's got a staff that's been there for 45 years in some cases. So, you know, there's so many people when you've worked there that you're still connected to that are still there. The, the, the traditions are the same, the people are the same. The, you know, yeah. Really it, nice. does, it does make me wonder, like it has become so I think maybe they're starting to do it a little less now, actually, but starting with Tina Fey as Palin and then Alec Baldwin as Trump, bringing in all these people, you do wonder sometimes whether it gives the actual cast that's there less opportunity. And I was curious sure. if how, how you would have felt when you were on the cast, I guess, if that had been happening, if so many people had been coming in, these big stars to play roles and maybe roles that could have gone to cast members. It did cross my mind like, oh, this could be a bummer if you're on the show. And I mean... We always have cameos, though. Yeah, the, shows, the show's really got, got the perfect mix of famous people. And I mean, every week there would be somebody. I mean, when I was there, you know, Goodman played Linda Tripp in the Lewinsky trials. And yeah, so I mean, it was pretty, yeah, pretty standard fare for SNL. So what I want to do now before we wrap up is our, our final segment is called The First Laugh. Um, and I'm just going to ask you guys about some some firsts in your career that we can run through and, and your life. Um, so starting with, uh, if you remember the first piece of comedy or one of the first that really made you laugh as a kid uh, growing up. Ooh. Oh my gosh. I remember this is going like way, way back. I remember when I was like three or four years old, my parents watching Laugh-In and seeing Lily Tomlin oh, wow. as Edith Ann in the, yes. big oh, chair. Yeah. the big chair. And that's the truth. Like I just remember like, whoa. <laughs> and, and then, like, a little older, I remember, um, you know, maybe when I was in, like, third grade or something, like, uh, like Carol Burnett and um, and the first SNL, like, Gilda Radner, yeah. Jane Curtin, Lorraine Newman. Like, I just remember. Clear memories. I mean, I'm listing all the ladies, but that's what I, that's what I remember as. Resonating with. First, very first, early. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Carol Burnett and all the characters. For sure. Edith Ann and Bob Newhart, actually. I remember as a kid just being, like. Not like I look back at it now and I'm like, 
I, I have no idea what that show is. It's like psychiatry. Because his deadpan. His delivery and his timing, yeah. I just like was riveting as a kid. Like I just wanted to say things like him, you know. Or like Mary Tyler Moore, like Ted Baxter, my parents used to like I just remember that thing. Yes. Ted Baxter, like we still reference him uh, all the time. Like we meet a kind of person who's like, oh, that's what Ted Baxter. And then and then actually comedy albums too. Like that that's sort oh, of a yeah. lost art. But I, I I do remember like laying in bed and listening to Carlin and laying in bed and listening to I mean, you know who, and <laughs> Cosby. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> back in the day, okay. we didn't know. It was just on recording. Knew. Uh, it was family friendly. Uh, we used to listen to uh, Monty Python. My oh, friend had yeah. Monty Python record that we would listen to. Hours. Over over. Yeah. Hours. Just like revisiting comedy albums. And actually, Tom, Lily Tomlin, all of her all of her holiday, I mean holiday, listen to me, all of her um, comedy albums. Oh, and Bob and Ray. Oh, yeah. Do you each remember the first time actually performing comedy on stage? Where was it? What was the experience like? How did it go? I remember, this is a really weird memory and it's not a good story, but I remember... So um, get ready. To get ready. Pull up a chair. (laughs) I mean, I did like a lot of shows. You know, I think theatrical kids do like in high school, I mean, in, in elementary school or whatever. And I knew like, I knew I was a good singer before I knew I was a comedian, but I remember I was doing just like a thing at morning assembly at my school. And I was, I just, I like, we had to sell, literally it was like madrigal tickets or something. And I acted out like a madrigal in the most over the top dramatic way. And like, crushing like the like the entire high school audience <laughs> laughing and being like i think i do i think i'm doing something other people can't do do you know what i mean like it, just, it was like this resonant and then it really wasn't until college i did when i started joining the improv group and then i was like oh okay got it got it yeah well, was it the first time you made performed performed comedy oh, performed on stage comedy. or first of all i was kind of like a class clown type in school like in junior high and high school so i'd be like shouting out little one-liners much to the grand <laughs> but the first time like performing i remember i did um your good man charlie brown in high school and i was um snoopy and that oh part God. that part is very like i didn't know it at the time but there's so much like Perfect. improv to be done in that yeah part. yeah so physical comedy time, and yeah yeah but it was my first time learning like oh i could like add this little bit in here and so that was like the first thing that comes to mind for that you're question. a natural snoopy <laughs> I would have cast you as <laughs> You said that on SNL, it took some time uh, to get on, uh, Rachel. I don't know about you, Anna, but do you remember the, the actual first sketch that you appeared in and, and what it felt like? It's like being shot out of a terror <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, did a, I did an update feature. It was one of the things I'd auditioned with. It was an M, here's going to date me, an MTV VJ. It was like a pop culture, like... Were you Kennedy? Uh, basically, okay, yeah. yeah we named her Kincaid. But oh, right, yeah. right, right. And that was my first show, and I did an update feature. And it was... That's I remember impressive. The, no, no, that, that was, was the Cinder. Cinder okay, Miller, sorry. But yeah, no, I literally <laughs> remember thinking like, oh, this is cotton mouth. This is what people are referring to. Like, because my mouth was so dry. But um, once, I, once the sketch started and people started laughing, I, I was like riding the waves. With its choose-or-lose voter registration campaign underway, MTV is emerging as an influential voice in the current presidential election. Here with a commentary is former host of MTV's political game show, Capital Hurl, V.J. Kincaid. Hi, Kincaid. Hola, America. Kincaid here, giving you the lowdown on Electionville. Come November, you will totally exercise your greatest right as a citizen, the right to vote. But here's the huge injustice. We are confronted by a limited two-party system that reduces homogenized, produces homogenized candidates. And oh my God, I sound so serious right now. It's like I'm the professor on Gilligan's Island or something. Like that's so embarrassing. It's like dun, 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 a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. Oh my God, 
song. That is totally hilarious. I love that. Oh my God. Mine was also gonna date me, but um, I did, I used to do Callista Flockhart. Like I did oh it my for God. my audition. Allie <laughs> oh, yeah. was the big thing. So that was my first, like, yeah, you, yeah, that was my first time on Flockhart. was doing her. Can you still do Callista Flockhart? Um, it's not, it's just, well, it's, you know, it's hard. It's, it's visual. It's audio. It's pretty visual. Yeah. Yeah, it was very visual. <laughs> I, uh, I, I saw it. I saw it there for a minute. You can't see the face. Um, <laughs> like an NPR sketch. Anyway, yeah. Um, do you do you each have a uh, memory about meeting a comedy hero? Uh, maybe it was at SNL, maybe it was somewhere else, but that really like early on in your career, uh, meeting someone who was, a, who was a big comedy hero. Well, the people, because like. everyone always asks like, yeah. you know, who's your favorite host? And I always go to those like people like, I mean, I think my first Everybody. season Dan Aykroyd hosted and he was like the first person from that original cast that I met. And so I was just like, like the, the like talk about the pinch me thing again. It's just like, yeah. oh my God, like I'm up here with Dan Aykroyd who I used to watch, you know, so that yeah. like also Steve Martin, I had the same feeling whenever I, um, you know, he hosted eventually, but I met him a couple times, like that thing of like, I can't believe I'm meeting Steve Martin. So this is like one of the tribe things, like where you realize that your whole, cause you know, the second you're cast on SNL, like really your life changes completely in a way that's like winning the lottery or I, I don't know, like it's, it changes in a million ways that you can't begin to quantify or understand how much it's going to, it's like a process for the, because nobody is famous when they get the show and you sort of suddenly become associated with this incredible American brand. And that just sort of develops throughout your life. So it was like, maybe my, I'm going to say eighth week, seventh week, early. I, I didn't, you know, I was new. I was scared. Uh, it was cold. So it must have been like November. And I was walking. It was like right after maybe the tree had gone up. And, you know, around New York just becomes like a possible log jam, 6th Avenue, like 14th Street, all the way up to, you know, the park, basically. So I was walking and walking and walking and walking to get a cab down to Soho on Friday night after rehearsal. And I was like kind of, you know, new in town, didn't know anybody really, and couldn't get a cab, couldn't get a cab. It was like 20 blocks. And I was just sort of doing the thing where you walk in New York with your arm up, like hoping that a cab would come. And a cab pulls up and the door opens and literally from inside the cab, a voice goes, Anna, get in, Aykroyd, I'll give you a ride. <laughs> and it was one of those things where I was just like, what is happening? Like, Dan, That's insane. like, how does he know who I am? Like, you know what I mean? And this was also like, yeah, I think just understanding sort of the wattage of what I was becoming. A, I was stunned. I couldn't believe that's, I knew him. That's insane. Was, it was crazy. And, he try, and I remember trying to pay for my part of the cab, like really nervously. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I was like, how much is he? I'm thinking like, so like, he's really made it. Like, he doesn't even need me to contribute for the cab. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But, yeah. Wow. That's cool. I didn't know. Yeah, that. Do, yeah, you, crazy. do you guys just drive around in cabs now looking for Yeah, we do. We just try to pick numbers, up, you know, uh, just pick up young hopefuls. Yeah, pick up. Get yeah, in. Aristotle, Atari. And yeah. We yeah, just, yeah. Okay, but hop in. Um, and then finally, (laughs) um, (laughs) I, I like to give, uh, comedians a chance to shout out, uh, other comedy comedians that are making you laugh right now. Is there anything that you've seen recently that that really made you laugh? This kid that Rachel and I both really like Chris Fleming. Um, oh yeah. He's so funny to me, man. He, he 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 really makes me laugh. There's something about his energy. He's already got a following, though. Yeah, that's like, true. That's fair. But, you know, we're like, as oldies, we're like, there's a kid, maybe you've heard of him. He's, he's got more like famous than 3.4 million um, <laughs> 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 But he is hilarious. 
hilarious in his brain. I don't even know like how it works. Yeah, and actually, we, you know, we we send each other TikToks all the time. What's her name that we were just looking at? Who does those? Oh, like, Jody. Yeah, oh, she's jo- hilarious. The woman that just—I don't even know her last name. The woman she's that does TikTok. those like fake design. She does like she's design she shows design show things, but it's all like a parody. So it's like, and it's all like a. Mom. I like to place this water bottle. Next to this sock to really bring out. <laughs> I like this Mitch. I like this shoe that, element. That in my really foyer. spoke to me, but I wish I knew her last name. I don't know her last name, so her right, name's well, we'll to, Jody on TikTok, who does we'll the have home to look her up. Shows. Yeah, and this oh. and this and this youngster, Chris Fleming. Check him out. We're getting the. All right, you guys <laughs> getting, getting the hook? We're getting the, hook. <laughs> we're getting the standing. Right. Well, I think we're I think we're done. So uh, okay. so that's great. <laughs> Um, thank you guys so much. This was really, really fun, and congrats on the movie. And yeah, enjoy. Have happy, a good rest of your holidays. day. Oh, All yes. Right, thank, happy thanks holidays. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. 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 All right. That was so much fun. Thank you again to Rachel Dratch and Anna Gasteyer for coming on today's show. A Cluster Funk Christmas will be airing throughout the month of December on Comedy Central, Logo, and Pop TV. So if you too want to get in the holiday spirit, definitely go seek it out. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.